This is the Pirate Radio Podcast. And welcome into another edition of Storytellers. I am Shirley Rhodes, and I long believe that uh, everyone has a story to tell. And a lot of folks around here uh, have stories that are just very, very interesting. And one of them is my guest today, and that is Richard Allsbrook. And of course, if you uh, travel in law enforcement circles, that name is very familiar as he's had a long career in law enforcement. But he's also an avid pirate fan. He's a, a guy from Martin County, grew up in the area, and uh, is uh, a big fan of softball as well. We're going to get into all of that coming up in this next podcast. But uh, I wanted to start off, uh, Richard, by uh, just telling me uh, how you got from Williamston to Greenville, North Carolina. Well, Shirley, that's the interesting story within itself. Thank you for for allowing me to come in today. Absolutely. Um, I grew up in Williamston, which is thirty miles away, and I think if if I can reflect back on my high school years, many of my classmates would find Greenville as a destination point. Um, during those years. Uh, the bar scene, particularly the attic and other nightclubs, mm-hmm. were very popular for teenagers. Um, and I know a lot of my classmates from Williamston eventually made it over to Greenville uh, because of East Carolina University. And I know that that my destination for Greenville was because of just that. I wanted to go back to college and, and kind of put life together and figure this thing out. And, you know, I was born in Robertsonville, which they don't have a community hospital anymore, but I was born and raised in Martin County, grew up in Williamston, and I do see a lot of my classmates from high school who went to ECU. I still see those folks today who have made homes here in Greenville. Um, when I came to um, ECU, that was in 1986. I graduated high school in 83, and directly out of high school in the early 80s, your guidance counselors were saying, you need to get into anything relating to computers. That would be the next thing going. And I think for those people listening, a Commodore 64 was something that was popular then, but the guidance counselor kept pushing me that way. You really need to find something related to computers. And one of my class mates went up to Norfolk to ECPI and I was a homebody really didn't want to leave Williamston and so I chose to go to Mark Community College for one semester and I took a class in DOS programming computer programming that's going way back are you talking DOS DOS and and I went in there Shirley and and I, I did okay in the class but I just I realized pretty soon that I'm a people person, me in front of a computer. This just didn't feel right. I just didn't enjoy that. So um, my half-brother, Jimmy, who's passed, was a part of the Weemston Fire Rescue. And following in his footsteps, I was volunteering with the Weemston Rescue Squad. So I was able to interact Um, not with just those folks in fire rescue, but also law enforcement. That led me to a career um, straight out of high school, practically, as a a 911 dispatcher in Martin County. Uh, So I had an opportunity to work as a a dispatcher from December of 83 to December of 85. So I did Mm -hmm. two years uh, nonstop in the dispatch room. And when the days I was not dispatching, I had... um, 
several relationships with those in law enforcement, the police, and in the highway patrol, I would go do ride-alongs. Mm-hmm. And I learned through those ride-alongs, hey, this is something that really interests me. And um, as that evolved, um, my mother had recently passed uh, away of cancer, and my father encouraged me. I said, Dad, I don't, I don't want to be in a dispatch room for 30 years. I really want to go back and, and get my degree in criminal justice. So um, I worked two years nonstop as a dispatcher in Martin County Communications. Thank you, Gertie Bowen, who, who hired me. Um, after that, I enrolled in ECU in January of 86. Mm-hmm. So my first footstep really in Greenville as a permanent home was January of 86. And, and for about a six-month period, I was just a full-time college student living up in Scott Dorm on College Hill Drive. And and as I started getting acclimated to Greenville, um, we all need to be aware of parking rules and regulations. <laughs> um, I There's became, a reason he's saying this. Yeah, there is a reason. I, I became fully aware of parking rules and regulations uh, when I received a parking ticket. So I went into the police department here at Greenville, and I went to pay my parking ticket off, and there sat somebody in the dispatch room, because it was like a, a window that the public could come see and literally look through the window and see the dispatchers. And um, I knew that person from the couple of years working in Martin County. We had been in a class together, getting some certifications together, and he brought to my attention, hey, there's an opening. Um, I said, well, I'm here to pay a parking ticket off. He says, no, wait a minute. We have a job opening for a permanent evening shift 911 police dispatcher. And I started really scratching my head saying, wait a minute, my classes are in the morning. This would help my dad out a whole lot. Um, So as he began to talk, he said, also, the city of Greenville offers some educational incentives where they help with your tuition. So they have a tuition assistance program. Mm -hmm. So really, that was a divine moment where the light just came down on me. I said, "Perfect timing." I'm here to pay a parking ticket off, and I walk out, and now I'm an applicant to be a dispatcher. So I applied at Greenville PD. I started my career at Greenville PD in July of 86, July 21 of 1986, as a full-time 911 telecommunicator dispatcher whatever term you want to use mm-hmm. so i was in the dispatch room for a year i went to school was still going to school in the mornings at ecu and dispatching permanent evening shifts like a three to twelve something like that so i was in dispatch for a little over a year and now i'm starting to be around close to 21 years old and i knew i still had that hey i really want to be a police officer in my blood i've, I've done all these ride-alongs i have a heart of service this would i would love to do this job and i applied the first time at greenville pd when i worked there i didn't get it so i said well let me go back and see if i can get more physically fit and go back and go through the process again and I went back the second time, and um, I, I was accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, Greenville PD sent me to the basic law enforcement training out here at Pitt. I took a hiatus, just a brief break from ECU. I always say I was on the five-and-a-half-year plan at ECU <laughs> for my four-year degree. So, Why? But but clearly work, and I was balancing work and, and that sort of thing at the same time. But um, I went to BLET. I got on the street. I was an officer on the street november of 1987 so i go back from my high school graduation 
shortly after December of 83. Now I'm in Greenville. I started out making $11,000 in Martin County as a dispatcher. I came to Greenville and started out making $16,000 as a dispatcher. And this is 1986. Which is respectable for that for that era yes and and i tell my son and my daughter today i said you need to understand you're you're very blessed you're very fortunate to to have the jobs that you have and Mm -hmm. and um anyway let me move on from there so now i'm a police officer um love the job um i had a field training officer um Lieutenant Sawyer, he retired as a lieutenant. Um, Sherwood Sawyer was my training officer. And after I graduated from the basic law enforcement training, which the public would refer to as kind of like the police academy, um, one of my first days in field training, now a field training officers with the new officers to make sure that they're applying whatever they learned in a practical manner. So one of the first days, my field training officer points out to me, hey, there's a car with an expired tag. Let's pull that car over. This was my first traffic stop ever. So needless to say, when you turn the blue lights on or when the police gets behind us we always get a sense of i'm nervous am i doing anything wrong right well now you've got the police officer behind you that's just as nervous as you because they've never stopped a car a day in their life so this was my first traffic stop it was over here off of uh, west fifth street um so when i went to initiate the traffic stop everything's fine i turned the blue lights on the driver pulls over and i'm so forward thinking like what am i going to do next what's next what's next when i went to get out of my patrol car i forgot to put it in park <laughs> and like now here i am as a rookie officer and i'm i'm guessing that they did not have did they have onboard cameras at the time they did not okay so there's no record of this no record really of from this. a video standpoint no record slightly disappointing from my vantage point because i would have loved to have seen that video I, I can i can remember the facial expression of my training officer and i was quick to realize hey i didn't put it in park i was able to put my foot on the brake in time before the car rolled into the to the driver i pulled over but um that was my first really um defining moment in my career i think was like i've never pulled over anybody before so here i go and i'm just as nervous as the driver so i know when officers you know and i look forward and fast forward into all those years of service um officers are really careful on traffic stops because what seems to be a routine uh traffic stop may indeed be something a little bit more that you don't know what you're walking into so you're always safety conscious and and um on that traffic stop i can just remember that's how it played out so i served a i was able to get through field training knock on wood i was able to be an officer on my own and eventually uh, just uh, i guess in the classification system defined as a patrol officer so i remained a patrol officer from 1987 probably to somewhere around 1991 and i served in patrol the best days of my life um i'm a problem solver i like to problem solve everybody thinks well hey all the police do are going to pull people over and write tickets and enforcement is a piece of what we do or what i did Mm -hmm. but i promise you if we had it like a pie the majority of calls we get are non-crime related calls that don't relate to any crime and you're really pulled into given situations that are not criminal and you're there to problem solve and Mm -hmm. you're there to figure out hey what resources are there that could help this person what what would be my role in this if any 
Bellini as a police officer. But and sometimes you have to play referee because, you know, if there's a disagreement yes. and, and neither side can come to a conclusion, sometimes uh, an officer has to. Uh, for lack of a better term play referee and say okay go to your respective corners let's figure out how to solve this so so correct and, uh, and the mediation piece is like you're saying is and, and problem solving is a huge part of what we do and you've got to be really versatile you know mm-hmm. you, you've got to be mindful that that one phone call a citizen makes to the police might be the only time they ever call the police in their entire lives. So that that response is, is so critical. It's, it's so critical that, hey, you know, we see so many instances where officers don't get it right. Uh, that tends to drive the media and the media ratings, and we stop to look at that. But I would argue with you there's so many times we do get it right that mm-hmm. just doesn't um, seem newsworthy, right? Right, so, right. So, but, but – during that time in patrol, I had so many experiences that, that helped me grow, not just as an officer, but as a person. And and I got to really define areas of Greenville that I'd never been a part of or seen before and was able to really connect with communities and, and, and have that mindset of, hey, your problem is our problem and we're going to uh, collaborate together and 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 see what we can do to resolve it. And those years, surely, uh, really a foundation was set. And and when I would think of my career, I went from that to special investigations, which is typically drug related investigations from a period of about 1991 to 96. And and then after those years of drug investigations, I went into personnel recruiting. Mm-hmm. So I did that. I think from the end of 95 to 90 somewhere in those timelines and and um, really was a part of the administration at that point in terms of seeing a different perspective of the department um, bringing candidates in who want to be police officers going through all the rigor that comes with that the background investigations the testings um, the psychological testings um, all that process um, would take maybe two or three months at, at, mm-hmm. in, in any given time um, it wasn't like instant I'm going to apply, and and you're immediately a police officer. There is a process in that. So I enjoyed that. That was probably a little bit more stressful. I think of my career, the the 911 dispatch, no doubt about it, was probably the most stressful job that I've ever held in in this law enforcement or criminal justice career. This was pre uh, E911. This is where people would call you on the phone. You had no idea where they were calling from. There was no electronic 911 system that would display their address, and they're telling you their house is on fire, or I need the police, somebody's been shot, and all the emotions that come with summing help you're trying to calm people down enough just to get information on not only what their address is and in some instances in rural counties like martin county how do you get there Right. right. Is that what road is this off of? And right. So you didn't have the luxury that we do have today. But in my career as a patrol officer, I went to that recruiting position and this is a unit I'm very proud of. Uh, it was an opportunity for promotion, so I, I became a corporal while I was in recruiting, and I did a couple of years in recruiting. Then I applied to be a sergeant, and during that period, uh, surely 
we were probably on the cutting edge of, of a response and how law enforcement and the community responds to domestic violence. So mm-hmm. we really, during 1997, with the help of some federal grants, the Violence Against Women Act, uh, Victims of Crime Act, we were able to establish our family services unit, which we would turn the TV on today and say that's special victims unit. Mm-hmm. So we would primarily work crimes uh, that involve domestic violence related crimes, sex offense-related crimes, and then we also had under our umbrella uh, the juvenile unit, so Mm -hmm. crimes against children. Um, So I was a part of that unit when it first was established, and there was seven of us, I believe, seven or eight of us in in the early days of that, and we collaborated a lot. Um, Chief Guard over at the Sheriff's Department, who's still working today at at Pitt County Sheriff, we collaborated with the Sheriff's Department and their initiatives as well. Um, We realized that uh, we saw some common themes in the homicides in our community um, where there tend to be some related to drugs, some related to drug-related robberies, but overwhelmingly we saw the common theme of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And we felt like if we were proactive on the front end in dealing with that particular crime, hopefully we could deter a future homicide. Right. So it wouldn't escalate to that point. I think our early training, Shirley, on domestic violence in general um, was separate, mediate, and mm-hmm. get out of there. Yeah. Um, that's how I was trained in the police academy. It was crisis intervention training. Separate the two parties that are in dispute or who has assaulted who and separate, mediate, and get out of there. And sometimes officers really didn't understand, and I didn't understand the dynamics of those relationships. Mm-hmm. But um, and, and to, to all of our, you know, and I was a part of it, I think it was the ill-fated response. Mm-hmm. We really didn't understand the, the dynamics of that. So we started our um, family services unit, a lot of emphasis on investigating domestic violence-related crimes. And again, the themes of what we saw of homicides included domestic violence and I think the collaboration with us and Pitt County Sheriff and Chief Guard now who's over at the Sheriff Department I think we made a huge difference mm-hmm. um it wasn't just on our shoulders. We had a lot of the community buy-in. I was a part of uh, our Family Violence Prevention Board for many years, and some of my colleagues who still work at Greenville have served on that. And we still certainly try to keep that uh, collaboration going and hopefully make a positive impact with victims. So long story short, I'm a talker now, so you're going to have to shut me down. <laughs> Um, but I just I, I served in those uh, in that unit, the family services unit, for a mm, few years. And I think in the early two thousands, or excuse me, the late two thousand, about two thousand seven or eight, I was promoted to lieutenant. So um, that's when I came back on the street as a patrol lieutenant. I supervised a shift. And then uh, current Chief Sauls, we devised what we call a zone initiative where we um, looked at the city, broke it down like slices of pie, and each lieutenant was assigned a zone that they were responsible for. And our police chief at the time, I'm not going to say he gave us an open checkbook, but he gave us the key 
to the cities should we have crime related problems in this given zone the lieutenant had the authority to address those crime related problems whatever was needed right so i didn't have to go say chief can we get these officers for this operation we're having church break-ins can i bring folks in you have the authority to do what you've got to do to stop the crime so um and really got a lot of buy-in from the officers um the officers um were assigned these specific geographical regions which they are today as well but they have relationships with the community which again our job we couldn't do our job without the community so Mm -hmm. we established many relationships and i value that to this day of those relationships i had i was the west zone commander which covered west greenville and the north side of greenville as well and Mm -hmm. to this day there are people that i could call right now and um, over those years of serving as a zone commander there we made a huge impact huge difference and uh, and i think that when i retired you kind of go out with satisfaction that you feel like when you started we've left it better than we found it mm-hmm. so that's kind of the walk away i took from and i retired in 2014 and and that's a whole nother chapter we can turn to but but that career um i miss the clowns but i don't miss the circus oh. There you go. Oh, and and honestly, I think that uh, a career in law enforcement really is a ongoing, uh, you know, ever-evolving study of the human condition. That's kind of how I look at it. And, you know, I find it interesting that you were a 911 dispatcher when you were, you know, just out of high school. So you're, what, 17, 18 years old. That's right. And, you know, as um, I have a dear friend that's a 911 dispatcher now, and, uh, you know, we often talk about as you mentioned the stressful situations that you know that people are under when they make that phone call you know how much of that um i guess for lack of a better term that mental fortitude that you almost had to create for yourself because you're you're 17 18 years old you're still kind of growing yourself now you're you're a dispatcher and you're having to calmly walk someone through a, a very traumatic moment in their life um, and then, you know, and as you are still growing as a person, how much of that really helped you as a police officer, especially when you're on patrol and you're having to see a lot of this stuff? Because, you know, when you're a dispatcher, you're only hearing it on the phone. But as an officer, you're seeing some of these traumatic events unfold in front of you. So how much of that mental fortitude was 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 helped by doing the 911 dispatching at such a young age i I think it it certainly helped um i don't know if i can specifically relate to a certain mindset that we had i know i looked toward my training i remembered i tried to emulate those that i that worked with me um that i worked with and could see how they handle these situations during training and it was almost a matter of fact mindset today we use a term called emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. right yeah and i've also heard that um, this being spoken before, and I believe it's 100% true, one person's trauma can be another person's trauma. Mm-hmm. So hearing those folks calling, whether they're on the police radio, I need help, or whether they're on the 911 line, um, it can and does affect you. If you're human, it does affect you, no doubt about it. You kind of wait to exhale after the call's over with, and then kind of, you know, my process was talking about it. Right. You know, I need, I need to share how I'm feeling about 
what I just experienced, what I just witnessed with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And and almost to get those feelings validated to say, hey, you're perfectly right to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that was an awful call or that was an awful situation you were sent into. And um, today, particularly in law enforcement today, um, those that are entering the profession you know, when you go through basic law enforcement training, um, you're you're such of a mindset that this is how I handle this. And I'm not going to say total tunnel vision, but through your training, it kicks in. Mm. And this is how I know if there's an active shooter, this is what I'm going to do. Boom, boom, boom. And afterwards, when I exhale, I'm certainly going to begin to try to process mentally what just happened. Mm. Right. And I think your colleagues being supportive of you, your super supervisors that are in charge that a recognize that that was a traumatic experience and b have those services in place to help you and internally now um, law enforcement's much better it was frowned upon many years early in my profession officers uh, and and telecommunicators dispatchers mm-hmm. i guess you're too weak to do this job or you're weak and right. and i think we've seen a huge shift in that when you start looking at numbers of officers line of deaths now the suicide numbers tend to be more elevated than than the actual line of duty death where someone is uh, adversary or tries to hurt you so the the profession is much better um we had a critical incident stress debriefing team that again the supervisors need to recognize this was a traumatic event we need to make sure these services are available for our dispatch everybody involved in the incident not just the officers that responded to the trauma or or the bad situation but from the beginning of the call so everybody now has resources surely that that definitely was not there when i started Mm -hmm. so i think we've evolved and which is a good thing well yeah and i also wanted you came onto the greenville police department Department in the mid 80s late 80s um and greenville was a much different city as it is uh as opposed to what it is now um and you know of course with and you mentioned this earlier when you were talking about uh your law enforcement career about um how much media can sometimes play into um the perception of officers and in law enforcement in general how you know but there's still and and there's a lot of been there's been a lot of technological advances that would certainly help law enforcement um one of them being uh the the one that pops into my head is the shot tracker mm-hmm. um which is uh and it has been a huge help for officers but we're also seeing a, a, a difficult time for officers because of retention in terms of keeping up with how do you keep up with a city that is growing so quickly like greenville is with the addition of the brody school of medicine and all of these businesses that are coming in the university and you've seen it just grow about with you know leaps and bounds from the mid-80s and then combine that with a retention problem that is not just a problem in Greenville it's everywhere but how do you keep officers and good officers on the the uh, police force in a city that is almost outgrowing the police force it is probably doing it now and people tend to when you when you ask that kind of question people tend to think 
salary, pay. What am I going to get paid? Am I is my pay comparable to the agencies within the region that I live in? And I think pay is a part of it. But I can tell you, Shirley, through my years of experience, um, the leadership of the agency, mm-hmm. and 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 being able to have an agency that that does allow input from the officers, the line officers, and recognizing. Um, the most valued piece of that police agency typically is that patrol function. Well, and they're the front line. They're the front line folks. And I think the good news is in my career, currently the department sits in a great position. Chief Sauls, and I followed Chief Sauls throughout Chief Sauls' career. When he first began to be a police officer, I was a part of the recruitment process uh, when Ted got hired. So those officers that, that, that look at the chief and say, well, hey, this chief's here or there. This chief has done what you've done. Mm-hmm. And does realize and has an open door policy to receive those issues or complaints. It is so challenging, like you said. I think what you try to find deep down inside what drives you to be a police officer, and if you can harness that, right. we know we're not going to be a millionaire in this profession. But if you can harness that, most people have a heart of service in their DNA. They want to serve, mm-hmm. and and that that's the common theme that that the officers do have, and they want to feel supported. Uh, they want a community that supports them, and that comes through our elected officials, which we have had that. I mean, mm-hmm. you've seen the growth of our department. I personally experienced it. We had less than 100 officers when I first started, mm-hmm. and we're well over probably close to 200, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the the city leadership, those elected officials have recognized that we need to make this a priority in terms of community safety and um, community support. Mm-hmm. And I think you're you're 100% right. Uh, I've talked to agencies that do have vacancies and and uh, it's been a period of time where the officers and the agencies have struggled. Officers have had to work additional hours mm-hmm. to kind of make up for some lost officer space is what I call it. Lost lost um, officers that should be on the payroll that obviously we need to still hire so the bottom line is i think community support uh leadership support is uh, probably the secret sauce to that the ingredients that would help retain officers of course salary is always a conversation piece um but at the end of the day i I know why these folks sign up for this and and it is a harder service Mm -hmm. contrary to whatever the belief is when you go through twitter you wouldn't think that to be the case but it most of the officers are certainly honorable and do a great job. Well, good. Uh, now, you retire after 30-plus uh, years of service. I'm going to say plus because there's a point there. But yeah. uh, So 30-plus years of service. Uh, it frees up a lot of your time to uh, check out all the pirate sports <clears throat> Excuse me, that uh, that you're such an avid fan of. But what did you do after you retired? Well, I had an opportunity after I retired to go teach and kind of back this timeline up. I told you I was on the five and a half year program at ECU for my undergraduate degree, and and I accomplished that. I graduated in December of '91. Okay, so um, I was able to get that done and i went back in the early 2000s and ecu had just started their masters in criminal justice so i was in the first cohort of that the first group to go through that program and i graduated in 2002 with a master's degree 
all the time. Meanwhile, you know, certainly at this point, I met my wife at ECU, so ECU means a lot to me. Um, we married in 1992. Our daughter Julia was born in 96. Our son Jackson was born in 2000. So at the same time, my wife Monica kept the ship afloat, no doubt about it. But um, from that experience of getting that master's degree in 2002, led to some doors to open for me. ECU asked me would I teach a class um, each semester and as a part-time employee, and I would balance that with my police department work, and I was able to do that and did it for 20 years So uh, um, before I became a full-time employee over at ECU Teaching. But the bottom line was in 2014 when I retired, there was a teaching opportunity for me at North Carolina Wesleyan College mm -hmm. in Rocky Mount, and it was a teaching instructor position, and it came with some benefits that certainly helped my family out as it relates to my daughter's education, who went to Meredith, mm -hmm. who has a history of playing softball all her life. She played college softball. Ah, so that's where the softball that's, passion came from. That's the softball passion. It followed her from a young age all the way through college, and I just love the sport. And um, so I went to Wesley and worked over there for eight years from uh, 2014 till um, just over a year ago, I think it was now, that was my last year at Wesley. And, and um, now I'm a full-time teaching instructor at East Carolina University in criminal justice, our criminology and criminal justice program. So did you ever think that as an 18-year-old 911 dispatcher, you would go into law enforcement, retire after 30 years, and then basically become a, a teacher at East Carolina University? No way. I couldn't have, <laughs> I couldn't have written that script. I did have a teacher at ECU when I was in my undergraduate, Jim Campbell, who was a retired highway patrol trooper. Mm -hmm. And he was probably one of the bigger influences on me during my uh, undergraduate degree. And I said, gosh, I'd like to be like him one day, but I didn't envision it happening this way. I could not have envisioned that. Well, and and definitely you must have been meant to do this job. And, and the reason why I say that is because of, as you mentioned, you know, you start out very, very early uh, in your career as far as dispatching goes, and then you go pay a parking ticket, you land a job, and next thing you know, you know, you're climbing up the ranks at the Greenville Police Department, and now you're a teacher. Uh, you know, you, it, it, you go back and you look at that linear uh, part of your life, and you're like, it all fell into place. Everything worked out exactly how it should have been. Um, let's talk about your love for softball. I know you love all the sports, but softball in particular. Um, and you talked about your daughter playing softball uh, all through her athletic career. Uh, you and I have done some softball PA over at uh, ECU. Uh, how did you, you know, really develop that that love? Because most most dads, when their their kids go on to college or whatever, and they um, either graduate or uh, you know move on to other things, they don't really stick around the game of softball. So, right. what made you just stay and kind of delve yourself into? Uh, the the sport of of softball. I, I love the game because it's fast moving. It's mm. it's a fast paced game, um, and I still love baseball. I'm a season ticket holder for baseball. So, but softball tends to be a faster game to me. Um, I think my love for it really parallels my daughter's love for it. Um, when Julia started, um, thanks to Bo Bats and those visionaries at Sarah Law, um, she was able to start over. In, 
Sarah Law and play for many years. I was able to volunteer coach at Sarah Law. Cheryl Curtis, a close friend of mine, who's mm-hmm. a colleague yes. at Greenville PD, who's also retired. Um, she was an assistant coach with me. So Cheryl and I coached my daughter's team. I had one rule I would always tell Cheryl and and, and during my opportunities to coach, I says, I don't want to coach my daughter. I want you to coach my daughter. Mm-hmm. I'm hands off there. Yeah, because you're going to get that, yeah. dad. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I wanted, you know, any learning process, I wanted to be from a neutral party other right. than dad saying, you need to look That's at this. That's a good dad move right there. That's so, a good dad move. So, but throughout that experience, you know, Julia was um, – found that to be a sport she loved we gravitated to it this was our pastime my son jackson who is four years younger than julia he followed along his big sister so he's been at i'm sure more softball games than he wanted to be at (laughs) but um julia was able to continue that with some opportunities in the travel ball setting and and as she became a middle school softball player um she played over at hope and i was fortunate enough to help coach best with the first softball team at hope middle school so she went from middle school to high school and you know at high school i'm hands off i i i told the coach at high school and the athletic director if i can help in any capacity other than coaching i'm in and i was able to do some pa work over at dh conley Mm -hmm. as i followed my daughter play softball Mm -hmm. so it kind of kept me kept me focused on who's batting next instead of me worrying whether she's going to hit the ball or catch the ball or whatever whatever Mm -hmm. the scenario is on the field but i guess the passion for the game um, bled over to not just me my wife but our whole family really began to love the sport we were fortunate enough to take one of julia's little travel teams she played on up to unc greensboro and see the olympic team and our players got to meet jenny finch kat osterman monica abbott all those olympians uh, they did a tour before they um, went and participated in the olympics but it was just a just such a cool moment because the young girls got to see those that mm-hmm. they they see in the game that excel and to the point of an olympic athlete and i just remember defining moments with julia where she got those opportunities Opportunities. And, and when she graduated from Conley, you know, I've I volunteered PA for softball forever. Um, then I started kind of following my son because he's four years behind Julia. He was into football and his first football experience was playing flag football. Um, Holton Ehlers was on the team and Morgan was the coach. <laughs> so that was Jackson's first experience. Okay. Greenville Parts and Rec flag football. Going up against an NFL quarterback that's now. The, that's, and Jackson ended up being Holton Center in high school. How about so that? So Jackson has okay. that, that story to tell the rest of his life. But he was he was Holton Center at D.H. Conley. And, uh, but I followed both sports. But uh, again, as a parent, you want the child to do the very best they can. You've seen them do this. You know that they can do this, whatever that is. Um, but I still tried to find a way where I could keep busy, not only – I don't have to focus on my child the whole experience where I get to be involved in. So some PA work opportunity came open with football. Mm-hmm. And again, not every play I'm watching Jackson. I'm trying to see who's catching the ball, who mm-hmm. can we announce that made the touchdown. So it, it mentally gave me a mental break. 
right from mm-hmm. the from the dad or that worries about their child and as opposed to hey i'm involved i've got to keep up with what's happening so anyway i've loved it um my career as a police officer i did have flexibility and, and mm-hmm. grateful for my wife monica who's a retired probation officer grateful for the fact that i had a full career and my family's still intact right right so i was able to survive a career when i say survive have that full career and still have a family intact be able to go and participate as a parent in their activities and and watch watch your children grow up and mm-hmm. it's kind of come full circle for me now because my daughter gets married next week oh how about that so it's a, it's just um this is my life moment everybody in the podcast is listening this is my life so here i am now getting ready to see my daughter get married uh a week from this saturday july 8th well, that is uh, that is absolutely awesome, and I, you know, we we've talked about all sorts of things. You know, Greenville has been uh, named Sports Town USA. Uh, everybody talks. You know, of course, we all talk about ECU football, ECU baseball. This is a sports town, and a lot of people talk about the little league uh, uh, baseball. Uh, mm. You know, the city league, and and. Um, you know yeah. all the little league stuff that goes on but the thing is is that it's not just baseball oh. it's softball too yeah. i mean there is a huge contingency of of softball players in not only in the city of greenville but in pitt county in general that has fueled um a lot of attention for the city of greenville we talked about this because you know for uh at least this year and probably next year i know it's for five years but the little league softball world series comes to greenville they they do the five-year contract i think we're in year three now Mm -hmm. or four i can't remember what year uh they actually started so Mm -hmm. but you know and that's something that you have done pa for that's something I, i have done pa for and if and you know we all talk about the Little League World Series um, that is up in Williamsport, but you need to be talking about the Little League Softball World Series that's right the, right down the street, right here on Elm Street, that is going to be a huge spectacle, and I honestly cannot wait for it to get here. I would encourage anyone listening to this, August 6th through August 23rd, you can come to Elm Street and watch teams from all around the world. And it's free admission, um, perfect venue, perfect setting. So please, please, please come out and enjoy that. Um, it is it is something that this community certainly doesn't take for granted. And you're right, Shirley. All the opportunities my children have had. My son played at Greenville Little League as a baseball player for Pepsi for many years. So I wouldn't trade those experiences for anything. And those opportunities are here. Jackson also played one year over at Jackie Robinson League. So that, well, how about that? That okay. was that was great. Um, Coach Chuck at the time, rest in peace, um, was was his coach. But we had we've had so many great experiences. And and as I reflect on this, you know, they, they found their niche, what they like to do. Um, Jackson was baseball, football. Joey was softball, volleyball. But I'm telling you, if you're listening to this, please come out and, and, and watch this Little League World Series. It's really something to see. Um, the, these people that you meet, you have lifelong relationships. I've I've got friends now in Texas that I would have never had as, as friends. And um, – 
but um, they, they've got they've got a really organized event, and I would encourage anyone that if if you even have an itch to see what it's about, please come out. And the best part about it is is that uh, I know with uh, the first year I did it, uh, uh, PA for the Little League uh, Softball World Series, that was uh, we were coming out of the COVID year, and uh, so there were no international teams, but there were the United States teams, and uh, I remember. Uh, first of all, the, it, it's free to get in. You you don't have to pay to come and see these games, which is the best part because you can come and see, and these games are being played all day, so you can see these games at any point in time that you want to. Um, but I developed the relationships of the people up in the press box, and that includes the people that you know from ESPN because ESPN broadcasts these games, and uh, you get to to know the the personalities that come out and call these games and if you've never been to elm street park you're really missing out because that is a very very well-maintained ballpark on top of the fact that they convert it to a softball field uh from a baseball field because of course softball and baseball have different dimensions Mm -hmm. um in terms of the base pass and everything else and to you know just to watch these girls play these girls are good and that's coming from you know and i look at it from an athlete perspective because i'm i'm a former i say former i, I kind of still play but i don't play at that level and certainly not at that age but to watch them play and to watch them make some of the plays that i i can't remember was it and i want to say it was a texas team um that was uh they had a shortstop that was phenomenal that year and she made play after play after play and i'm thinking at that age i couldn't make a play like that and uh so these girls are very very talented yes and they just get better and better every year and uh i am you know i unfortunately had to miss the the world series last year because i had to go out of the country but this year i plan on being there as much as i possibly can because i'm really looking forward um to seeing what kind of talent's going to come to greenville absolutely and 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 you said it i was watching the the women's college world series this year and there was some commentary in the championship game they mentioned one of the pitchers had played as a little league player yes um oh was it the florida state pitcher i think sander uh, sandercock i I can't remember i don't remember right off the top but um do you remember i think her name was monique davis monique davis um she pitched in the little league baseball world series in williamsport and I got to see her pitch in person oh, wow. because she played for Hampton University and Hampton came to East Carolina to play East Carolina and I was doing PA for that game. So I got to watch Monique Davis pitch in person and I'm like, this is the same young lady oh. that was on the mound in Williamsport and just torched some kids as a baseball player and here she is as a softball player and we all know there's a different delivery method for that yeah. and and she was just as effective and I thought that was just one of the coolest things I've ever seen when when the um, our local team a few years back went to Williamsport Julia my daughter and I rode up there to, to watch us play and and I will tell you the atmosphere is great at Williamsport and I'm not knocking 
uh, the boys' side of the fence. But mm-hmm. I promise you, when you come to Elm Street Park, they're crazy. It's absolutely <laughs> it's crazy. Bedlam. Um, bring really water. Is. Stay hydrated. But the the experience the kids have. I mean, they're here in Greenville, North Carolina, of all places, and 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 you begin to learn that hey, they've not been many places in the world either. So mm-hmm. they they do it all up first class for the for the players on these teams. And I know this year, and I was following the Little League website or the Twitter account. They're bringing the uh, Athletes Unlimited Pro Games to the uh, to Greenville. That's coming. Which is huge. Yeah, and that's if if you don't know what that is, those are your college players that are now professional women's softball players, mm-hmm. and and that is coming to Greenville this year. And it kind of mirrors what they're doing in Williamsport. The the boys go get to see the MLB game. Well, mm-hmm. they're bringing the the pro teams here to Greenville that'll be playing before the participants. And I know a lot of information will be coming out on that very soon. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, and I'm fairly certain that I'm correct in saying this is the first time that that has ever happened. So yep. you've got not only the Little League College, uh, excuse me, uh, Softball World Series coming out, now you've got the pro athletes that these uh, young ladies emulate and and probably have watched on TV yes. a thousand times. Yes. Uh, you know, because uh, as a matter of fact, Kat Osterman mm-hmm. I know for a fact has been affiliated with um, Athletes Unlimited. Some people call it the AU. Um, and uh, Kat was, uh, is a coach um, and I don't know if she still is coaching. I know at one time she was a coach for one of the teams for AU. Um, and I believe Jenny Finch is associated with the organization. And I want to say Monica Abbott was also mm-hmm. either pitching or a coach at one time. So those former Olympians that you went down to Greensboro to see yeah. are now affiliated with AU. And they're bringing these professional athletes to Greenville. And I just think that that's huge because not only are you got you've got these professional athletes, you've got these very talented young ladies that are coming in from all over the country and the world because the international teams will be here as well to um, to the best of my knowledge so you've got all these softball you know uh, kids coming into town and I mean we're not even going to touch on the economic impact that that's going to have on the city of Greenville coming in uh, you know in August but to me you know, I, I always go by the creed that representation matters. Yeah. And when you have young ladies, uh, you know, kids that are out there playing at the Sarah Law Softball Complex and they get to go to the World Series and watch kids that are their age playing in the World Series, that gives them, you know, hey, I could be one of those yes. young ladies. And then they go to see the AU um, players and, you know, hey, I could be one of them too. And I really think that that is the the groundwork for um, really making the sport of softball and you're seeing it gain in popularity you're seeing it a lot on the uh, television I mean you see uh, teams like Oklahoma and Tennessee and Florida State and um, yeah. uh, some other schools that are escaping me right now but you watch their games their their stadiums are packed unbelievable and it's and it's so much fun to watch and like you said it's a faster paced game uh you know this could only breed more success for the sport of softball especially in the city of greenville absolutely and you you know through this conversation Shirley, i would be total remiss if i didn't mention ann weingart's brian weingart's absolutely mark phillips all the folks at greenville little league that have 
over the few past few years and continue to labor in this love. They mm-hmm. do a great job and have made this a reality, really. They have behind-the-scenes folks, but I promise you those are people to be recognized, and they're, they're all treasures for our community to make this happen. Well, we're running short on yep. time, so what I'm going to do is we're going to end it with something a little fun that I like to do. I like to do like a, a set of questions um, just to kind of get a, uh, I would say, a different perspective. So my first question, and I always get an argument on this, but I have to ask everybody because I, I like to hear everybody's perspective on it. Is a hot dog a sandwich? I would say no. Okay, what is your reasoning behind that? That's why you had the long pause. I'm trying to (laughs) rationalize why I say no. Um, A hot dog's a hot dog. I think that the whole notion of bread being with a hot dog would would interject this conversation. Is it a sandwich because it has bread? But I don't. I think a hot dog bun. I just can't. I guess the shape. Let's go with the bun shape. Okay, that's Let's fair. Let's go with the that's bun fair. shape. That's the only thing that comes to mind. The shape of the bun. If it was square, I might say yes, a sandwich. But the bun is dimensional to the hot dog. Okay, that is a fair argument. I I cannot argue with that. That is a fair argument. All right, next question. What's the most used app on your phone? By choice or non choice, right? <laughs> Um, probably, if we talk, if we're talking apps, I, I'm trying to get unaddicted to social media. Mm-hmm. So, um, golly, the weather app. I, I'm, okay. I, I'm, I use the weather app. I can little legitimately say that. Uh, you know, I had a uh, I had a friend in college who uh, always came out and said, "What's the weather for today?" She would get she would come out of her room, and of course, back then this was like early '90s. You know, of course, we didn't have cell phones back then, so you had to turn on the weather channel to find out what your weather forecast was going to be for the day. So every morning, without fail, she would come out and check the you know the weather channel, and I was like, "That has got to be a southern thing," because I don't think everybody checks the weather like that every single day but i as i got older i realized i was completely wrong everybody does it even even i do it the weather app okay the weather app all right what's one thing that you own that you really should get rid of i own i and and i play the drums i'm a drummer I, i did the in high school, I had to choose between the drums and, and marching band or football. I took the drums because it didn't hit me as hard. Okay. So I did sports in my younger life. Um, I don't have them out. They're boxed up. My wife would probably argue to, for, for space purposes, we probably need to get rid of the drums. But I can't do it. I just can't do it. Would you uh... – Okay, so next question would be, what is your favorite smell? New car. Ooh. I don't know how you go get any better than the smell of a new car. Yeah, although that smell changes the second you drive it off the lot. It it does. It loses the (laughs) smell value. You're right. Um, Do you have a favorite motivational quote? Mm. Or a favorite quote in general? I, I just believe in looking forward. You know, I used to always – it's interesting. In in softball, when we coached, I think us as people, you know, God put eyes in front of our head to look forward. So if we just 
made a bad play, if we just lost that game, our eyes are not on the back of our head. We're looking forward. So always okay. have the mindset of, hey, we'll just look forward. We can't change what has happened behind us, but we can do everything we can to, to make it better as it comes toward us. Okay. All right. And last question. What is your favorite sports memory uh, of all time? whether it be something you witnessed or um something that you were a part of oh gosh that that's i i I battle with that question because there are sports memories that i have with my kids that that i treasure jackson hitting a home run at elm street you know stuff like that julia hitting a home run um from the sports scene from from the ecu perspective no doubt the peach bowl yeah oh yeah no Mm -hmm. doubt and and i just remember um, sitting there with our heads down, and my father-in-law was saying, "Lift your head up! This game's not over." And mm-hmm. we just battled back, and it was cold, 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 cold in Atlanta that day. But oh, so you were there? I was there. Okay. And uh, the Peach Bowl probably was just to hold to see that unfold. And did you ever bump into Troy at the Marriott Marquis? Troy, <laughs> I, uh, I, I just had to throw that yeah, in there. I, I didn't. I Since didn't, we are talking peach ball here, yeah, I didn't. I don't remember seeing Troy. And I don't know how well I knew Troy during that period. Oh yeah, yeah. But 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 yeah, just just that whole experience. I know the night before the game, they had the big event in the underground. I will never go there again. It was like the dropping of the peach, New Year's Eve, mm-hmm. and you think Halloween night in Greenville's crowded? No. No, it was just everybody underground Atlanta packed, but um, it was a great time. I can't, I can't argue with that trip. There's no complaints. Yeah, 1991 from just about every ECU fan's perspective was a magical year. Unbelievable. Um, well, Richard Allsbrook, thank you so much for coming on to my podcast and sharing your story as a law enforcement officer, as a dad for uh, uh, two athletes. <laughs> Uh, and also uh, talking about the impact of, of the sport of softball in the city of Greenville and having so much fun of being present uh, with uh, some of the special events that are coming up uh, very shortly. Thank you so much for coming on to uh, this podcast. Thank you, Shirley, for having me. And that is another uh, edition of Storytellers. I am Shirley Rhodes. I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Pirate Radio Podcast, an exclusive presentation of Pirate Radio, the voice of the Pirate Nation.